0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are. I hear my producer counting us down. Three, two, one. Sounds like either a spaceship taking off or a bomb dropping. (laughs) Let's talk. James Valiant is with me in the house. James, how are you doing on this fine Wednesday? I'm
1: doing well enough, sir. Uh, How are you doing?
0: Really good. Really well it's Good. uh autumn in michigan or rather spring a uh, summer is winding down but we are making the most of the days we've got left and one of the things that i did recently is i went to the movie theater saw that big blockbuster no i didn't see oppenheimer yet i went to see the barbie movie but you know oppenheimer <laughs> just hit Tells us something about your priority <laughs> 500 million dollars if that Silly Barbie movie wasn't out there breaking the billion-dollar record. We would all yep. be talking. In fact, we are talking. Oppenheimer hits five hundred million dollars.
1: That's pretty movie? darn good for a film. Yeah. That's
0: amazing. I mean, <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't that ain't
1: chump change, as we say in the states. <laughs> this,
0: is, this is not the latest Marvel blockbuster, and no. it's not a silly Mattel toy movie. This is history. Right. This is right. a guy who changed history. And $500 million in receipts to see this historical World War II drama? That's awesome. I agree. I think it's a really good sign. Personally, movies seem like they were on the way out. Movie theaters weren't going to recover after COVID. And now people are lining up. Going to the theater a couple weeks ago and seeing a theater half full. Well, half full is kind of amazing these days. That's a good thing. It's a good sign and i am well, glad of it
1: Maverick did well you know and uh the recent move, movie on uh, child trafficking is doing well and uh now uh of course barbenheimer is doing well people are going back to the theaters and some of this stuff is either good sense of life stuff or serious uh, serious drama and that is i think a good sign
0: As i it's it's very funny but at the same time i love this this tying together of this incredibly lightweight film and this incredibly heavyweight film as right. barbenheimer i don't think it's just the contrast in the humor i think people appreciate both extremes otherwise the money wouldn't be getting spent the way that it is Good, good sign. And it's good to see Oppenheimer in the spotlight. The Ayn Rand Institute is enjoying this moment as well. You know, their latest article about Ayn Rand's meeting with with Oppenheimer. And they're releasing more and more of that biographical material. The Brandon Lissy article was very good. Link to yes. that on my Facebook wall. You've probably already read it. I love this Ayn Rand quote about meeting Oppenheimer. And I want to I want to read this real quick before we get to Dr. Peakoff's questions. Ayn Rand said, he is so sure of what is right and that he is capable of deciding it, while others are not, that he must force it on those inferior others for their own good. In such an attitude, there is a natural impatience of the intelligent man who can't bear to see things done wrong when they can be done right, and he knows how to do it. Uh, There's been talk about Ayn Rand based Dr. Robert Stadler on Robert Oppenheimer, no coincidence in first names there, but I kind of want to emphasize after listening to uh, Yaron Brook talk about it last night and reading Brandon Lisey's article, it wasn't that Ayn Rand thought that Oppenheimer was a maniac, world destroyer. No, it was his temperament and his, his perspective as an extremely intelligent man with no patience for the less intelligent that were the basis for Robert Stadler and his indignation at being forced to deal with commercial concerns, for example.
1: (laughs) Right. He was, uh, back up the story just a little bit, Ayn Rand, when she moved back to Hollywood, got a great job offer from a uh, producer named Hal Wallace. He produced Casablanca and several other big Betty Davis films and Errol Flynn films for Warner Brothers so he was the big producer over at Warner Brothers but because of a rift over Casablanca uh, when Jack Warner picked up the Oscar and embarrassed uh, the producer Hal Wallace who should have got the Oscar he Hal Wallace left Warner Brothers started his own production movie production company and the first writer he hired was Ayn Rand he gave her an incredible deal she could only work she only had to work part-time for him Uh, as a script doctor and as a script writer. And the rest of the time, he allowed her to write Atlas Shrugged, which was already starting to happen. She was also having to write the screenplay for The Fountainhead shortly. So this part-time job gave her an opportunity to write love letters. You came along, be a script doctor for him and a couple other projects. And one of the projects he wanted to do was a movie on the making of the atomic bomb, right in the wake of it. We're talking 1945, 1946. So Hal Wallace sent Ayn Rand out to Los Alamos to interview the people behind the building of the atomic bomb. And she extensively interviewed scientists there, Oppenheimer extensively, General Groves extensively. If you want to see some of this, it's reprinted in the journals of Ayn Rand, the wonderful reprint they have of the journals. Some of her notes on this, the making of the film Top Secret. Now, the movie project never got realized at that time, how all sold away the rights and so forth. So it never got realized. But Ayn Rand did do amazing research going out to Los Alamos, talking with the scientists and and General Groves out there. And it's true that that Oppenheimer uh, served as an inspiration for Robert Stadler. But in Atlas Shrugged, he's just about the most evil villain in Atlas Shrugged. Uh, In fact, many objectivists regard him as the most evil villain in Atlas Shrugged, for good reason. Uh, But Ayn Rand did think more positively of Oppenheimer than of Stadler. She, in her, It would be unfair to equate the two in her mind because she did draw him out in a way. The first Oppenheimer, she reports, was a little reluctant to talk to her. But when uh, she said, no, I want to talk about how only a free society could do this and how men like you could do this, it was then that he started opening up to her. And they had some interesting in-depth conversations after that. So it just provides a... T- Ayn Rand's life is the stuff of legend. <laughs> she saw the Apollo 11 moon launch as a vip she witnessed the russian revolution she had an extraordinary life in terms of just as a witness to the 20th century um in this regard i have to say so it just makes a fascinating story
0: yes yes and we're not going to talk too much about oppenheimer in fact jeff in the chat has said damn talking about the movie i don't go to theaters they suck i don't see him until they release on (laughs) blu-ray i totally get that feeling i certainly see more films on uh streaming and cable than I do on, I don't know, I haven't fired up my Blu-ray player in a while, but no, what I really want to talk about today, and James, you gave me the privilege of selecting questions for today, because, you know, it's come up recently in this connection that Ayn Rand didn't think the United States should have entered World War II, that that war would have been settled without us. Now, some might argue, with much more bloodshed. It would have gone on longer. You can make the case that we, the, the Allies might not have won the war without the U.S., but she had a good argument, and Leonard Peikoff was asked about this. So because our show is Keeping It Real, featuring questions that Leonard Peikoff was asked on his podcast, most of which were reprinted in this book, Keeping It Real, let me jump to question number one. Was the United States right to be involved in World War II? Very short question there. and What a
1: powerful one, huh?
0: Yes. And it needs a proviso, which Leonard Peikoff gives right away at the beginning of his answer. He says, first of all, objectivism does not have a foreign policy. (laughs) But that certainly was not Ayn Rand's position. In those days, we had the isolationists who believed America first and the internationalists who believed sacrifice America for Europe and all the rest of the world. Of course, Ayn Rand was a total isolationist, here following George Washington, who said not to get involved in foreign entanglements. Then he he gives a bit of advice here. If you want to know about World War II, read the book by John Flynn titled The Roosevelt Myth, which tells you what FDR had to do with World War II, including picking the day when the Japanese would bomb Pearl Harbor. It was written in his secretarial book in advance. Let me stop the quote there for a moment. Now, James, I've looked into this and I'm not sure that I give that theory the same credence that Dr. Peikoff does. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: That is a complex subject. It's not just the Roosevelt myth, but other things that John Flynn wrote that were very interesting because very early on, he had in the 1940s, mind you, he was pointing out that the attack on Pearl Harbor really had to have been anticipated by Roosevelt, who was clearly trying to maneuver us into World War II. There can be no doubt of that. Roosevelt was against, most of the American people, along with the Republican Party, were opposed to our entry into World War II. Now, some of them are, of course, smeared and attacked for being isolationists. Some of them, though, were kind of sympathetic to Nazi Germany. Iran was not among those that group of American firsters for sure, but she was definitely on the side where mainstream Republicans were as they were by the way in, in the entry of World War one uh, it was the Democrat President Wilson who had to convince a very skeptical Republican Senate to get us into World War one and similarly uh, uh, a Democrat President Roosevelt had to uh, convince a very skeptical American public, including what Republicans that were left in Congress uh, to get into world war ii but there was no doubt that roosevelt wanted us to get into world war he had been supporting materially he had been sending uh, uh len lee stuff he'd been sending material uh both military and non-military support to britain in that which had been w- at war with nazi germany since 1939 uh russia had been at war with uh, nazi germany since 1941 Now, before Pearl Harbor. Now, in the course of all that, a little context, you will recall that what got America into World War I was a big propaganda thing about the Lusitania, a passenger ship, an American passenger ship. At the time we were technically neutral and the Germans bombed it. Well, it turned out that this neutral passenger ship had military equipment from America being sent to, to Great Britain uh, it was the Allies who risked those civilians' lives. Canadian troops were there being sent to help Britain in World War I. And so, but nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, uh, that was a cause celeb that got America into World War I. Germany was doing everything it could to avoid a Lusitania. So, although Roosevelt was sending all this equipment over to Britain to help fight in the war against Germany, uh, Hitler wasn't, was doing his utmost to avoid a Lusitania, not declare war on America, try to avoid America getting involved. And so the, it posed a problem for Roosevelt. How do I, and he knew, and we have, this is all well known. Roosevelt knew that America needed to be attacked by uh, Germany or one of its allies to convince America to get into the war. Um, they were well aware that they were uh, uh, in effect, provoking uh, Japan into a war. They knew very well that Japan could attack before they were attacking. Now, the details of that are very controversial. Did Roosevelt know the exact date? How certain were they of the nature of the attack? We have evidence, however, that we that Roosevelt was intentionally provoking. This much is true. Roosevelt was intentionally provoking Japan into an attack. They knew well before Pearl Harbor that an attack could happen and was imminent. Uh, so that much of history is absolutely correct. Now, if we break down a little more of the history, we can see that getting into World War I and then getting into World War II was a bunch of appeasement that got us into that in the first place. Yes, objectivism doesn't have a foreign policy, but had it not been for British appeasement of Germany, German Nazi expansion would uh, could, might have been stopped much earlier might've been stopped much earlier. So it was that kind of appeasement that got us into that. The Europeans got themselves into that war. Um, uh, No question about that. Now, the question, could we have uh, stayed out of the war altogether had it just been a European theater? Well, once Russia was involved, why not let The totalitarian Russians and the totalitarian Germans fight it out, and then whoever survived that bloodbath would be much easier to take on if they were still an expansionist dictatorship. Ayn Rand explained in her testimony before Congress in the late 1940s, and I urge everyone to look up Ayn Rand's HUAC testimony, where she was asked about just this, there is never really a good reason to ally yourself with a, a dictatorship like Hitler and it's counterproductive. Look at the results. It's the post-World War II results of our alliance with Russia that really showed the horrors of a, consec- I mean, a whole section of the world was kept in dict- dictatorial slavery in effect for decades because of this decision to ally with Russia rather than let the Nazis and communists fight it out and then if necessary sweep up the, the, the winner of that one which was Ayn Rand's own approach. Um, yeah, he I maneuvered into Pearl Harbor uh, by uh, f- by Roosevelt. I don't know to the extent he knew it was going to happen. I think it's controversial, but there's no doubt FDR wanted us in that war.
0: I, I of course, I agree with that. I, I certainly agree with Dr. Pigoff right up to that point there's a great article on both sides of this debate on wikipedia worth reading there's a link in my notes but first i've got to say thank you we've got sorry about that
1: speech by the way (laughs) no
0: this is exactly the kind of conversation i wanted to have today as i suggested to jeff banister it's not about the movie no we want to know about the issues we want to know about the history shazbot is in with a big big super thanks and thank you for that we appreciate your support any funds that come in support the Ayn Rand Center UK, make shows like this possible, provide this content, including the new The Reality Show, the one o'clock or 6 p.m. UK time show. This has been going great. And view-wise, success-wise, it's been going gangbusters. So thank you, Shazbot. Also also from Jeff Bannister, who is in with a super sticker as well. Thank you for that. appreciated your earlier comments as well. Again, you're going to help keep us on track here. Now, again, I entirely agree with Dr. Peakoff when he goes on and says uh, Roosevelt wanted to get into the war for power and to share the world with, quote, unquote, Uncle Joe, you know, Joseph Stalin, uh, and to solve American unemployment. Now, wait a minute. You want to get in the war to solve American employment. How could a U.S. president be foolish enough to think that make work much less Military service is a solution to unemployment? Well, unfortunately, the entire history of the Great Depression tells us FDR absolutely believed that that would be a solution to unemployment.
1: For those familiar with Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, this is a wonderful example of the broken window fallacy. Uh, Roosevelt believed his his Keynesian approach to uh, uh, New Deal policy uh, was, in fact, a giant exercise in broken window uh, logic. And uh, many of his own economic advisors, his secretary of treasury, his uh, top uh, brain truster uh, from Columbia University, these men by the late 1930s recognized that the New Deal had been a complete disaster. It had not really controlled the unemployment problem. There were as many people unemployed after seven years of of New Deal as there were before. And so Roosevelt was indeed, and you can find this too, he was. Looking for another giant window to break, so that he could well deal with all these unemployed uh, people out there. The WPA, the Work Projects Administration, had been declared unconstitutional, and so now he needs another way to make work employment and maybe even it sounds horribly cruel, but kill off part of the unemployed section of America.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a conservative who famously said the purpose of war is to kill people and break things which is pithy, although entirely untrue, but ironically as a conservative, because it was FDR who absolutely believed that, yes, one of the great things about war is that it breaks things. And you're right. Anybody who's read economics in one lesson, you would think, how could a man of any intelligence believe that? And yet, if you start under Keynesian principles, it absolutely makes sense. We've got to put people to work. That's where production comes from. Amazing. Uh, Leonard Peikoff says, as Ayn Rand put it, quoting Ayn Rand, Roosevelt's solution to unemployment was to kill the unemployed, unquote. Now, Roosevelt wouldn't have thought of it in those terms. But what's happening when you take the unemployment, excuse me, you take the unemployed and send them off to military service and not today like these horrific but almost understandable calls for uh, you know, national service, get the high school kids to go spend a couple of years in the army. But no, during an active conflict to take the unemployed and send them off to war, Ayn Rand was not understating that at all. No. And yet that was the history that actually that's happened.
1: Of, that's one of the more controversial statements she's made about foreign policy. Um, but I have to say there is a strong factual basis in the historical record for precisely what she just said there.
0: Yeah, you know, one death is a tragedy, 10,000 deaths is a statistic. I'm sure FDR didn't think I want to send people off to die. And yet he knew the calculus, he knew the numbers, he knew what would happen when he did what he did. And in that sense, he was absolutely fighting unemployment by sending the unemployed off to die. So Leonard Pigoff goes on, what would a rational person have done? Well, they would have stayed out of Europe and let the USSR, and Nazi Germany fight to the death, to mutual destruction, that would have saved European freedom tremendously and saved the United States from being sucked into world slaughter. What we did, on the other hand, is give unbelievably huge financial support to the Soviet Union. There's a book you might want to look for called East Minus West Equals Zero by Werner Keller, 1962. We all know that one now, which shows what Russia would have been without the West's financial support. World War II was an abortion, a corruption, and a depravity from beginning to end. The only thing you can say about it is that once the Japanese did attack, we had to respond. And we did respond in a proper way as a real war and not what they now call war in Iraq or Afghanistan. But it should never have come about. A final result of the whole thing was that one of the worst generals in World War II became president, and that was the end of the Republican Party. This is
1: true. Some of America's greatest generals, like Patton and MacArthur, uh, who were really good quad general, didn't really have the great careers or Patton died, obviously, but MacArthur faded away like old soldiers do, as he said in his speech. And it was the commander, uh, the the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe, uh, General Eisenhower, who became uh, the president, but he was as much a politician as he uh, was a general, unlike MacArthur and Patton. Uh, unfortunately, so I have to agree with this entire assessment. This entire assessment of the thing—if it had not been for Western appeasement, world, neither World War One nor World War Two would have happened. At. All it was Western appeasement that got us into those wars uh, in the first place, uh, no doubt about it. Now, once America is attacked, now a lot of people say, "Well, obviously Roosevelt wasn't aiming for it. That would have distracted resources from the European theater to the Asian theater." I would remind all those folks that Japan had attacked China and was actually getting all the way down to Southeast Asia, threatening the Indi- What was still Brit- the British Empire, the in- the the entire subcontinent of India. You recall was part part of the British empire. And so by getting into Southeast Asia, they were directly threatening, Japan was directly threatening British interests, places like Singapore, Hong Kong, but all the way down to Southeast Asia and uh, India itself were now under severe uh, uh, threat. So I dismissed that entire uh, uh, argument altogether. When uh, Japan attacked us, still we didn't, it was Germany that declared war on us several days later because of their alliance, and then we, of course, followed suit. Uh, so uh, it actually lends credence to exactly what Ayn Rand and John Flynn were saying. Uh, this was all kind of a, a maneuver to get America into war. But once we were attacked, we were the victims of an aggressive attack by these, this tripartite alliance that involved Italy, Germany, and Japan. And that got them all involved against us. And now when you're gonna do a war, you don't mess around with a war. You, you let the Pattons and the MacArthur, you cut them loose and you use the your best technology. You don't worry about collateral damage, because guess what? Every German and every Japanese civilian that died were killed by their own dictatorial governments that had initiated this war. If Germany hadn't started World War II, none of these people would have died in Europe. If J- Japan had not invaded China, none of those people would have died in East Asia. So the civilian damages that that the allies allegedly inflicted are the fault of the aggressor or dictator nations in this case, not ours. And once you're attacked, you know, I'll use my story of my, little, my big brother when I was a kid. You know, I was just a little kid like little brother, you know, five-year-old brothers do. I punched my six-year-old brother who's bigger than me. <laughs> and he said, I'll let you get away with that one, Jimmy, once. But if you ever do that again, I'll hit you back and I'll hit you back 10 times harder. I uh, thereafter was, uh, let me put it this way, deterred from, <laughs> from any aggressive action thereafter, because that is a perfectly valid threat. And uh, that is exactly how you have to fight a war hit them back 10 times harder, crush. Their willingness to fight show them them the consequences in their nation. So uh, I think that's the tee up for uh, both the firebombing of Dresden, say, and the uh, nuclear bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
0: Yeah, it's 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 striking that we have to make the moral point that when a war is started by an aggressor, yeah, any quote unquote innocent lives in their country that are killed are not the responsibility of the people defending themselves. No, but Even then, imagine if nobody defended themselves and, say, the Nazis had taken over the West and the Japanese Empire had taken over the East. What do you think would happen to those, quote-unquote, innocent civilians in that kind of a world? Exactly. Exactly. The tragedy of the dropping of the bombs, well, what would have happened if we hadn't done that to the people of Japan, not that they would be our primary concern?
1: Well, but to the, the
0: civilians the, in Japan, what would have happened?
1: Well, look at the Battle of Okinawa. The southern, the biggest southernmost island in the Japanese chain, Okinawa, was had a conventional attack on it. Uh, the U- U.S. forces landed and had a conventional war. It was a bloody mess for both sides. If anything like that had had to happen, say, on the main uh, island of Japan, imagine Yokohama and Tokyo. Uh, under that kind of an attack, there would have been all kind. Con- first of all, we have a right to say American lives first. American lives first need to be saved. But even the Japanese lives would have been perhaps even more than the losses at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in a conventional attack. People rarely give that any consideration, but both sides would have had huge casualties. And if the battle for Okinawa before this had been any indication, it would have been worse than the casualties of Nagasaki and Hiroshima put together.
0: Yeah, it's just, I try to project out what would have happened if if the Allies hadn't stepped in, whether America was part of that or not. But if the Nazis had won, if the Japanese, if the empire had expanded... You know, we've we've got a great super chat. I've got to read this from Eddie Earned of Lady Columbia. Always has great questions, but this one's an observation. And he says, and and thank you for the uh, contribution, realists can be some of the smartest people in the room with power and strategy, but they have no end except for balance and think that idealism is childish. It's pragmatic and, excuse me, it's the pragmatic and idealism's False dichotomy. Yeah, the the idea that everything has to be a balance of power. If we have winners and losers, that's no good. There because there are no good guys, right? There are no bad guys. Or even if there are, it's not practical to think of actually defeating the enemy. Well, Leonard Pigoff refers to Afghanistan and, and Iran, Iraq. What a nightmare that is to have gone there, to have sacrificed all of those lives and countless more, again, of the enemy than American lives, but that's even irrelevant to know. End to to no purpose for no reason whatsoever. Are the lives of the people in the Middle East going to be better off for those actions? Much less the American lives, the, the most important lives.
1: I am sick to death of the kind of foreign policy approach that says, "Oh well, we're backing this dictator into a corner." We're you know, <laughs> yeah. dictators have backed themselves into a corner. They have they they are at war in effect with their own populations. Uh, read. An article by Ayn Rand called The Roots of War, where she demonstrates that, in effect, in modern times, all the modern wars have been started by the comparatively dictator, dictatorial countries. Dictatorship is the cause of war. When a a dictator is, a dictatorship is in effect a war declared uh, within a state by its own government against its own people. War is simply when you're running out of victims, finding more victims uh, outside. So the corruption of dictatorship and the nature, the inherent nature of dictatorship itself will lead to war. Dictatorship has been the cause of war in the modern world, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the idea that somehow backing these dictators into a corner. Is a bad thing. Just boggles my, absolutely boggles my mind. It's a formula for exactly the kind of appeasement that gave you a Hitler. Excuse me if I get a little passionate about
0: that. We may get even more so. That's why I'm especially gratified to see there's there's a lot of super thanks, super chats, contributions coming in. Uh, Vladimir Rusinov has given a very generous contribution. Thank you for that. And Jeff Bannister is in with a super chat and a comment. He says, "I know mosquitoes could hurt me." I don't go stand in the swamp because of that. But when one lands on my arm at home, I don't let it bite me. I squash it. And then he asks, did Rand initiate the libertarian NAP concept, the non-aggression principle concept?
1: No. Uh, As he no got not, out here, George. Well, well, let me put it this way. in this, In the this sense of foreign policy, non-intervention idea that libertarians, the better little L libertarians have grounded their pro-peace, interventionist foreign policy. And that's just a reflection of the founding fathers of America. George Washington believed that America should stay out of European wars altogether, entangling alliances with none, peaceful trade with all. We were, he envisioned a morally uh, sort of a, uh, uh, idealistic nation that would not get involved in what our typical, in Europe at that point too, the wars were uh, often between Protestants and Catholics and one king versus another king, and America wanted no part of it for a a long time. And so throughout the 1800s, for example, America studiously (laughs) attempted to avoid getting involved in international politics. In the 20th century, it is uh, how America became a world power was the result of these Democrats, Wilson, and Roosevelt getting us involved in world wars and in world conflicts. Um, And there was already, Iran was just one voice of, like we were saying at the very beginning, one voice of many voices that were saying, no, America's interests are in staying out of the war, at least initially. It was Britain's own appeasement that got them into that war, and World War I, by the way. So, uh, I agree with the uh, uh, the idea uh, that uh, libertarians have a poli- foreign policy that's based on this older isolationist foreign policy. But note, some of them are anarchists. They don't want to have a want America to have a foreign policy at all, and they believe that there, you, you know, we, uh, if America isn't armed to the teeth when there is a dictator, an aggressive dictatorship out there, if there are Stalins and Hitlers out there in the world, we cannot go anarchism my libertarian friends. We have to be armed to the teeth and prepared to crush them should they attempt to spread their evil ideology on us. Uh, So uh, we're very much not libertarians in that sense. Ayn Rand believed that America should be ready to defend itself and swat that mosquito out of existence if necessary to discourage all further uh, mosquito attacks, uh, which we absolutely have a right to do. So she's not libertarian. She's actually defending the original foreign policy concept, at least, the principle in general of George Washington. But of course, it's consistent with Ayn Rand's uh, own version of the no initiation of force principle, which the libertarians sort of take as uh, a religious axiom.
0: Yeah, it was my understanding that in the development of the libertarian party, they borrowed you say they borrowed from Ayn Rand, it makes it seem like they're objectivists. No, <laughs> they extracted out of her philosophy the bits they wanted and the justifications they were looking for. It's like when we're little kids, you know, Bobby started it, he started it, he did it first.
1: <laughs> okay, I well
0: that's it.
1: war. Ayn Rand thought that dictatorship was the worst social condition, and that war was the worst manifestation of dictatorship She hated dictatorship like you know so it just disgusts me when people uh, compare her like the evil Whitaker Chambers in National Review to, to dictators it 's just the opposite. she was the most passionate. Uh, enemy of dictatorship in the 20 in the total age of great totalitarianism the 20th century when it came upon us and she was opponent of war she thought it one of the worst things uh, imaginable and she thought that we should do everything we can to avoid it she like mises understood that the free market was the system of peace peaceful interaction between people. Trade. It's our economic interdependence that prevents war. It's our—it's it, having values, that are promoting freedom and individual rights that encourage peace among nations. Um, to yes. think of Ayn Rand as a warmonger is just, or advocate of dictatorship, is to just get her all upside down. Uh, in, in fact, in an intentionally perverse way, in my view.
0: It, it's worth noting, and some folks might not have thought of it this way, When you consider Ayn Rand's philosophy, she was an advocate of reason in epistemology based on her her understanding of the primacy of existence in metaphysics and of rational self-interest in ethics. But when it comes to politics, she didn't talk about uh, liberty. I mean, she did, but that wasn't what she called her political philosophy. She didn't talk about republicanism. A Republic versus a, a democracy. No, she's talked about capitalism. Well, isn't that economics? No, not when it comes to Ayn Rand. Laissez-faire capitalism as a political system. And that to me is the answer to the non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle, yeah, it, it's, it's saying something, but it's not the basis of a political system.
1: You can't just, even understand its application if you don't understand its philosophical roots. And sometimes they'll even get the formulation of the no initiation of force idea wrong. But even, even those who might even get the formulation right among our libertarian um, um, uh, friends, <laughs> I'll try and use a nice word there, right. uh, even when they get the formulation right, they don't know how to apply it because they don't know its philosophical roots. You need a whole philosophy here. Uh, Mr. Libertarian, Miss Li- Ms. Libertarian, out there, exactly what Iran has, and what y'all are completely ignoring, because you don't even know the philosoph, the moral basis for it. You don't, therefore, you don't know how to apply it consistently in practice.
0: Now we have a super chat from adherent of Lady Columbia, and you may or may not know anything about this. Uh, I know very little about Peter Zeihan, other than he thinks everything's everything is to be understood in terms of power. And so, adherent of Lady Columbia, thank you for the contribution. Asks this thoughts on the Peter Zehn view that through the breaking of Europe in World War II, that backed U- that U.S. backed global trade, U.S. backed global trade became a matter of a security policy bribe let me read that one more time thoughts on the peter zehan view that through the breaking of europe in world war ii that u.s backed global trade became a matter of a security policy bribe again this this sounds like it's trying to say well every everything is money and behind the scenes power grabs but i again i haven't read uh yeah, book he's written several books on global trade and
1: yeah and i'm Familiar with him, but I'm not have I'm just not familiar with the name and the idea. But I have not studied his uh, theory well enough to give a good response.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we'd have to look into that more. I don't know that I have anything to say about it. I suppose he, the way I'm praising the question is implying a negative. Right. <laughs> you you, anytime somebody it. says it's all it's all power and behind the scenes in order for people to get rich. Of
1: course, uh, the, the Marshall Plan uh, was government. Uh, we recognized that Western Europe, in fact, Europe generally, had been laid waste by World War II, and the United States government had a giant foreign policy program in the wake of World War II to help the the crushed nations of Western Europe rebuild. Um, it, it, trade would have been, I think, and trade is a good, is the way to do it. Trade with the relatively free market West was uh, actually in their advantage and everyone's advantage. And it has lifted the boats, the the poverty boats of all nations that have engaged in free trade with the Western industrialized nations. So it's a funny way of putting the theory. What makes me suspicious about it from the outset uh, is just that trade with the West wasn't something we cornered them into uh, (laughs) nor was it the plan. It seemed to me Uh, it's just in everyone's mutual advantage to engage in a win-win free trade situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I hate to be sound. Uh, suspicious of a, an author that I haven't read. So I yeah, should leave I, it at that. I should have, um,
1: I should, maybe shouldn't have even said anything. But well, that was just my first thought off the top of my head.
0: <laughs> yes, it, it, it may well be good stuff. Either way, we can look into it afterward. Also, Frank is on board. Frank gio Lombardo says, Can you comment on why in the best years of our lives, a man at a lunch counter tells an injured man that the U.S. was fighting on the wrong side? I don't know if I've ever seen that film. Any well, thoughts, James? Well,
1: the best years, God. Ayn Rand did not like that film. In fact, when she was going to testify before the House on american Activities Committee, that was the film. You know, They were going to ask her. She had lived in uh, communist Russia. She witnessed the Russian Revolution. She came to America and was a big screenwriter in the 1940s, and so the House Un-American Activities Committee investigating communist ideas infiltration in Hollywood. She was the perfect person to talk about communist propaganda in films. They asked her about this Robert Taylor film, I think Song of Russia was the name of it, which was just, I mean, you wanna see just rank pro-Russian propaganda, where everything in communism is just wonderful and everyone's just smiling, everything is wonderful, and aren't those commies running a government just great? It was disgusting, it's true, but Ayn Rand thought that was obvious. Anyone could see that that was rank uh, uh, pro-commie propaganda during the war, Uh, but she wanted to talk about best years of our lives, which, think about that. It had these, it was about the psychology of men who came back from war horribly injured, and uh, I would not recommend the film. It is a horrific film, and it is, talk about, getting the moral issues exactly wrong. Uh, now, why would they put it in a film like that? Well, that film was exploring how war as such is evil and never, you know, even the good guys, right? But I'm, I'm just going to say that Ayn Rand's understanding of that film is so powerful and so penetrating. Again, what you want to do is read Robert Mayhew on uh, Ayn Rand and, oh gosh, I, the name of the book is escaping me, Robert, help me. Um, is this
0: the companion to Ayn Rand we have here on the shelf?
1: Uh, the one about Hollywood and Russia that uh, Robert Mayhew did. Um, oh. It's escaping, the title's escaping. Yeah, right Russian
0: now. writings on Hollywood? Or this, well, this would have been after that. No, no,
1: no, 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 not the earlier one. There's okay. actually, and I, I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll okay, try to we'll find that link in the thing. But uh, uh, there is no question that Ayn Rand's opinion on best years of our lives was a highly, that was the movie she wanted to talk about. That was the one that talked about the, uh, the moral issues in effect of the war. She interestingly wrote a war uh, movie, Love Letters, which talked about a man who had been injured during World War II and the psychological impact of that. So the only tantalizing thing I'm gonna do is give people a project if they're ever interested. Look at Ayn Rand's Love Letters and how she deals with an injured man in World War II and the best years of our lives and how they philosophically deal with that issue. And I think anyone who is familiar with Ayn Rand's ideas, will the contrast will leap out at you and you'll see exactly the what I think are the dubious morals behind the uh, uh, making of best years of our lives. Well-made film, just an evil message. Ayn so Ayn I think the
0: answer, to, the answer to Frank's question has got to be that, that uh, William Wyler was on the wrong side of this issue.
1: He did not, philosophically, did not understand the issue. If it were up to those kind of people, we'd be in a constant mess of moral grayness with uh, any dictatorship.
0: Excellent. Well, James, this is exactly the discussion I wanted to have today. And I've kind of been going light on the questions from keeping <laughs> it real because because these are the topics I wanted to discuss. But let me at least get this second question in. Because Leonard Peikoff has asked, what if anything, and we've talked about this one before, but now I want to talk about it in this context. What, if anything, would prevent a proper government if we ever establish one from sliding towards socialism as the United States has done? I think he brought this up last week and we didn't have time to really get into it. So let me just read the first, the first part of Leonard Peikoff's answer. He said, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. But it must be vigilance, not in regard to spotting dictators, but more basically in regard to spotting philosophers who are going to destroy the foundations of society and then refuting them. That was a profound weakness in the founding of the United States. Great politics, but no real philosophic foundation. The founding fathers were not philosophers. And therefore, when the wave of Kantian statism swept the world. Their descendants had no answer. Above all, the founders had no answer to religion. It's true that they were much better than Christians, but they had deism, and deism is a very bad viewpoint. Deism was the view that God, the omnipotent creator, created the world and its laws, but then he retired, and we're now free to study the world without reference to faith or God. Well, this is obviously better than Christianity. The Greek view, though, Was that God did not create the world? The world was eternal, and there was no single God. There was a bunch of lesser gods who weren't worth very much. These gods did not create the laws, the laws were inherent in the nature of things.
1: That's exactly right. The Greeks didn't think of their gods as the creators of the universe, but like us, developed within the universe, they're like, you know, older big brothers and sisters who are a lot more powerful, uh, but they were not these supernatural, all-powerful creators of the universe. The Greeks had an entirely different uh, view of secularism. And uh, as secular as the Enlightenment was getting, they had, I would add to Dr. Peakoff's answer there, they had not rejected the moral code of altruism.
0: Hmm. Yes,
1: the founding fathers did, using the best Uh, legal philosophy of the time uh, men for all their flaws, like John Locke, uh, they implemented uh, the political philosophy of of the the best in European political philosophy at the time. And they did it as well as good a job as you can imagine uh, people putting together a government in the late 1700s could have done, but they did not have a deeper philosophy. What they needed was a morality that would defend this pursuit of happiness business, and they did not have it. And as Leonard points out, more than that, there were deeper philosophical issues in metaphysics and epistemology that were behind that. So what we needed was objective, well, to put it in one word, objectivism, that they didn't have a better philosophy to defend reason, and most importantly, in my mind, a better ethics. They still accepted the altruism of Christian Neoplatonism, even as Kant was doing his work and making matters worse, they still had not rejected even the altruism of, of Jesus uh, based on Neoplatonism. platonism and that was a disastrous contradiction from the start, and there is nothing that can prevent us from sliding into dictatorship if that's where our culture is taking us, if that's where the philosophical leaders are taking us. It is ideas. And the more fundamental the ideas, the more powerful the ideas. It is those fundamental ideas that shape the future and always have. And so long as humans are the rational animal, always will. Um, And uh, there is no constitution, no written law, that will in the long run, protect. it can help, it can slow, our constitution was a dynamite uh, document for which I'm still grateful to the founders for creating. And it has slowed down the rate at which America says going in towards a dictatorship. It can help, but in the end of the day, it's philosophy that controls and no constitution can prevent that. Look at how the interpretations of our constitution have changed. from the Supreme Court, ignoring words and ideas that really were words and ideas of the framers uh, on a purely philosophical basis. Uh, there is it, it is the power of ideas that shapes the future, ladies and gentlemen, and no constitution, however good, can prevent that from happening.
0: Excellent. If, if you caught me laughing, it's because I'm, I'm reading some of the chat, not the super chat, just the, the regular chat, which I love And for example, Christopher Smith says the founders weren't philosophers, and I think that's a great question to ask because they were such thinkers, especially compared to a lot of today's intellectuals, much less any of today's politicians, (laughs) that to me they absolutely were philosophers, but I understand exactly the point of originating philosophic systems. Also, there's a user in the chat who's named after the most popular episode we ever did, The Analytic Synthetic Dichotomy. And this user, The Analytic Synthetic Dichotomy, says, and I'm laughing because you practically answered this, even though I know you're not monitoring the chat, Kant wasn't a statist. Hegel was the statist of the German idealists.
1: <laughs> and of course- Like, is that a show? The, irrele- the, the how much less important politics is to ethics. Politics is but the handmaiden to ethics. If you have a, an ethic so truly evil as the ethics of Kant that says consequences do not are irrelevant in ethical questions, ethical questions must be decided irrespective of consequences. That will give you concentration camps. I don't care what your politics are. I'm aware that Kant was an Enlightenment liberal. I'm aware that he was in favor of the American Revolution. Those kind of ideas are comparatively irrelevant to his assault on reason, which undermined everyone's confidence in reason as such, and his disastrously intrinsicist ethics of deont- deontologism. Uh, that is, when you tell someone that d- doing your duty, uh, regardless of whatever the consequences are, you have set someone up to be a monster, a monster. It is only Kantian ethics that can get people to be utterly indifferent to the slaughter of millions, my friends, whatever Kant's politics were. And people like Fichte, the socialist, uh, the German socialist, or Hegel, who really was a political, the fa- one of the fathers of political totalitarianism in the modern age, they w- were merely following through with the same basic approach, if you will, to philosophy that Kant gave them. It is still all a post-Kantian development of ideas. uh, And they were just taking it to its logical consequence. Uh, It is the, liberalism never really had a great hold. I mean, there was a wonderful moment in the middle of the 1800s. The 1840s and 50s were really an exciting time. You might've thought that the continent of Europe was going in a liberal direction. France certainly was going in a liberal direction and so forth, but that was soon snuffed. By the end of the 1800s, it was clear Europe was heading in some kind of socialist direction. And that is the result my friends of deeper ideas than mere politics. Um, Kant's politics are comparatively irrelevant in their impact on history compared to his epistemology, which undermined everyone's confidence in reason, and his ethics, which allows people to ignore consequences and therefore the slaughter of millions at a time. That's how strongly I feel about Kant.
0: <laughs> well, That's exactly the point that I was hoping that you would make. It's so easy to look at Kant and his politics and say, well, but he also was good or on our side in some ways but if we had skipped kant and even kept christian ethics if kant was was simply saying altruism is good well that would be an inversion it would be backwards but it's almost innocent compared to saying it's not altruism we need it's duty duty with no end the only reason why kant would be in favor of altruism is because the only way to show that you had no personal stake was to sacrifice, but the sacrifice was bad enough. It was the no personal stake. The idea that the only way to be objective and then to be moral was to have no interest, not even sacrifice.
1: Oh, Kant admitted that sometimes your behavior, if you're obeying his uh, categorical imperative, might work to your selfish advantage. And sometimes it might be total altruism. But the only way to really know it the only way to really isolate that you're acting with total disinterest is to sort of demonstrate that you're going to favor the other guy over yours and put your interest lower. That's how Kant saw it. So uh, and I, it is nothing less than that evil. It is nothing less than that evil his approach to ethics. And once you do that, any consequences. Look at how he, what he's doing he's severing at the base Ayn Rand's grounding of the objectivity of ethics. It is life that is the objective grounding for values for Ayn Rand. Kant severs that at the very root. That is why he is the very opposite, in fact, the most opposite ethical thinker from Ayn Rand in the whole of history for that very reason that you say there. And at that point, it really doesn't matter what the consequences are because Mm -hmm. Kant has let the floodgates loose. Any horrific consequences that come as a result of that are the result of this kind of approach to ethics that says consequences do not matter.
0: Yes. Well, we are getting near the top of the hour, and I think. Uh, well, first I want to take a moment and, and thank all of the super chatters today. We've got a big day, a big lineup, and there have already been some generous contributions. So, between this show and the other three shows that I believe are all going to be outstanding today, this is a very good day for the Ironman Center UK, and that's good because the channel has been it's been very exciting. Watching the reorganized schedule, watching the return of TV talk, watching how the new show, the reality show, has been such a success that it's taken over the one o'clock spot and it's getting great view counts. We appreciate all of the views, all the supports. I know some of that is coming from people sharing it out on the social networks, which is enormously powerful stuff. If you ever have the a, a thought that I should hit that share button, please do, because there are hundreds of thousands of objectivists and probably millions of Ayn Rand fans you know, casual Ayn Rand fans who would love the content we're providing. I'm always surprised when people say, oh, I didn't know there was an objectivist group in our area. Oh, I didn't know there were other objectivists around here. Oh, I didn't know there were things on the internet. I think we've been out there forever. But no, you don't know until you know. And your shares could make that happen for somebody and help support this channel. Let us keep doing what we're doing. The kind of work, James, that you are doing on your weekend study sessions, as well as the outstanding content you provide during the week.
1: This Sunday, the session will be at a slightly different time. Um, and, uh, uh, our producer will send out not- notifications to all subscribers. You have to be a paid subscriber to get, and at a certain level, to get some of these perks. We do mock trials. Uh, uh, we try and doing them at least once a month. We're doing a Sunday study session on Leonard Peikoff courses and books and essays. We're doing uh, all the other stuff you see here. We have a reading club, and rosie has got all kinds of new ideas and material and guests waiting uh, uh, for y'all to, to enjoy. So please, please consi- hit like, hit share, hit subscribe and do, do please uh, consider becoming a paid subscriber to the Ayn Rand Center United Kingdom. We got all kinds of, we got, like Robert says we got a hell of a week here of material lined up for you and we've got all kinds of other material being planned. So please, please, we're creating a worldwide community of serious scholars um, and serious students of objectivism, so let's keep this conversation going and support us at whatever level you you're comfortable uh, financially supporting us
0: at. Absolutely, and again, huge thanks, huge shout out to the folks in the chat. I think I'm going to save the next two questions, James. We're getting close enough to the top of the hour, and yeah. I want to mention what's coming up because we have got some content coming up you don't want to miss. There is a conference coming up over the next couple of months called Resurrecting Romanticism specifically about Romantic art and especially about Romanticism in music, that era and music being done today that is using the Romanticist uh, style, tradition, methods. So coming up on the Daily Objective, in half an hour, David Berry is going to be presenting Why Do We Enjoy Music? Now, Dr. Berry has a new theory Along the lines of Ayn Rand's mention in Art and Cognition about what, why does music do what it does? He's got a new theory. I don't know how much he's going to give away on TDO, on the Daily Objective, but I know that's going to be a great show. I might still have to go down to Atlanta to actually attend the conference and get his full theory. Right after that, U.S. Women's Team Closes the Gender Gap. The reality show is going to be great. I want to hear that discussion. Now, you know we always announce the main topic, but there's usually three. You'll get to hear what all three of those are if and when you watch that show. And then, because we only get Dr. Pearson every other week, I am really glad to see He has a show today. The topic is Mind Matters on Lee Pearson's The Cutting Edge. And I am looking forward to that as well because he's got our own star of HBTV, Harry Binswanger, on as a guest. Uh, The description, mind, mind is an oft-used concept, but what exactly does it refer to? In this episode of Cutting Edge, we will discuss the mind and its functional architecture with guest Dr. Harry Binswanger. Now, I know that when we talk about the architecture of the mind, references to, for example, storage systems, file folders, computers, Dr. Binswanger and Dr. Pearson don't always agree. I am very excited to hear this episode. So, four good shows on the ARC UK today. Great content made possible by those of you who are members of the Ayn Rand Center UK. Link to become one if you're not already is right at the top of the chat or just go to einrandcenter.co.uk click that become a member button. And those of you who have put in your super thanks, super stickers, super chats, hit that dollar sign, put a couple dollars on your question. Your questions deserve to stand out in that way. And folks who are members of the YouTube channel, uh, but if you don't have any spare change in your pocket at the minimum, because it costs you nothing and it enhances your... Uh, your posture on the internet, <laughs> share these shows, give them a like, support the channel in all of those ways that that are just take a few clicks. Folks, you're making these conversations possible. And James, James, it is an honor once again to speak to you. Again, these are this is exactly the conversation I wanted to have this week. I know we didn't go as long on Dr. Peacock's questions, but your thoughts on World War II, on Robert Oppenheimer, and on the philosophy that informs the kind of decisions that FDR and Truman made. Uh, invaluable to me and I really appreciate this discussion.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us a a, a show today. I I wasn't feeling up to snuff yesterday and you filled in uh, with some brilliant questions here and it followed up on what we were doing. Notice, ladies and gentlemen, how we integrate the shows. We try to create some integrated uh, connection between the shows and and across the shows. Uh, You're not gonna find that kind of thinking done um, by other uh, uh, YouTube uh, material providers out there. Uh, Rozzy and Robert are doing such astonishingly good work. Daniel and Irene and all the people behind the scenes are doing such astonishingly good work. All I can do is say thank you guys and mostly thank you to all the listeners and supporters out there. Have a great week, everyone.